Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It's David. It's the podcast. We're doing the usual, trying to make economics, you know, comprehensible, a little bit more relevant, and hopefully more accessible to all of us. Another strange, odd week. Mr. Davis, how are you, Head? I'm very good. I had a good old week. Tell me more. We're down in Roscommon, and it's not a place I would normally go to, but... It was fantastic. Sheena said to me, we just need to get out of Dublin for a few days. And she went looking for places down the west and down Cork and all the rest. There was nothing there. There was uh, either places were booked out or they were price gouging. Oh, yeah, really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that going on. But we ended up in Roscommon, which was surprisingly brilliant. And I probably shouldn't say that. We were near Boyle in a place called Knock Vicar. And, uh-huh. and it was brilliant. Amazing walks, a lovely house that we were in. At the end of the house, there was the, the River Boyle and all the rest. And I loved it. But when I was walking around both Boyle and Carrigan Shannon, it struck me that, you know, these were, these were lively towns. They're market towns and they're lovely towns. But COVID has really, really hit them hard. Oh, yeah. I mean... Roscommon, have you ever seen Ozark? <laughs> I have. Okay. You know Marty in Ozark? Yeah. Right. I was thinking if there was a really brilliant Dublin counterfeiter and he had to get the hell out of Dodge, <laughs> and he had to leave Dublin, he'd go to Roscommon. Right. <laughs> that would be the place to go. All Absolutely. Right, yeah. Absolutely. Buy up the place, set up a big casino. Set up a big casino <laughs> on the water. On the water. On the water. <laughs> Bribe a couple of local politicians, <laughs> get everyone, hang out with the local families. So that's when, when you say Roscommon, I just think Ozark. Yeah, that's fair enough. But do you know what? You know, we were talking, we have been talking over the last few weeks about how COVID has changed everything and is completely, changing everything. Completely. What struck me is to be in one of those places, like I have a lot of relations, as you know, in, in Longford. And a lot of people commute from Longford to Dublin. So COVID- Do you know that Longford Town is the most cosmopolitan town in Ireland? <laughs> it is the truth. Where are you getting that from? From the last census. It's the most ethnically diverse town 
the most ethnically diverse town in Ireland is Longford. No way. I really? I swear to God. Now, that wasn't when you and I were in St. Mel's Cathedral. Yeah, St. Mel's, yeah, which burnt down. Did it burn down? It burnt down. Was it they burnt? Re- or, was it, or did it burn? <laughs> was it like, there's like little fires everywhere, the Immaculate Conception just burnt? Or no, it no, it was, it was trash. No, but they rebuilt it. But really, hang on a yeah. second, really? Huge migrant population. Massive. And one of the more fascinating things about migration into Ireland has been the dispersal of migrants, where they live. Yeah. And unlike many other countries where migrants almost exclusively go to the big cities, to the centres, in Ireland you've got two areas of migrants where Mm. the migrants live. Mm. One is indeed in the centre city, but the other is not in the suburbs, not in the outer suburbs, but in the massive hinterland in places like Longford. Wow. And why was that? It's yeah. because of the way in which uh, the refugees in the beginning were 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 housed, were homed. Yeah. It's because... It's all your ghost estates. All, all those things, yeah. All those yeah. things. It's also because of the price of accommodation. Yeah. And because a lot of refugees just didn't know where to go and they've ended up in all sorts of areas. So the most diverse uh, ethnically... That's outside really of Dublin City. Yeah, that's really interesting. You that's, wouldn't have thought that in the no, 80s when we no, were there? No, absolutely not. That's really interesting. But the thing about that place, I would have no qualms about living in Roscommon, Longford, that area. The only thing that bothered me about that, though, was the fact that phone signal was patchy and the internet was slow. Well, you know, look, you know, Wi-Fi is the motorway system of the 21st century are the railroads of the 21st century. Mm. Without Wi-Fi, all this opportunity that has been presented by COVID will not materialise. So if we were to put in, whether it's a broadband system, whether it's a Wi-Fi system, something that makes connectivity real, not aspirational, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, could yeah. profoundly change our because we forget how small this country is. That in the context of not having to go to the office. So maybe you need one meeting a week, right? Yeah. You can easily get a bus or the train or drive to Dublin, have that meeting, mm. and then go back home, you know? And the country's tiny. So this is why I've always thought that COVID gives us an opportunity to reimagine the country, you know? And I know lots of people say, oh, you couldn't do this, we're too small, etc." But to put in a French-style high-speed rail knowing that it's going to cost you, knowing that it's never going to make money, mm. but also knowing, back to my point that I keep making, interest rates are zero. So it doesn't yeah, bloody yeah. matter. And you could actually then release this because over the years, you know, the books I've written, you know, Pope's Children, these sort of books, were all about suburban living. And they were all about that place, Deckland, you know? Yeah, that was yeah, a suburban yeah, yeah, place yeah. where people were obsessed yeah. by decks. And this came to me when I was in Nace, and Nace was the fastest growing town in Ireland in 2005. Last year, the fastest growing town was Port Leash. So we've kind of gone out another 20 or 30 miles okay, from right. Dublin. The youngest town in Ireland is Drogheda. So what you're seeing is the vibrancy of the nation is seen in commuter towns. But the cost of that, job is all this dead time going in and out. And the fact that the commuter towns themselves have no business. So if you imagine you're in one of these places, let's say Portish, right? Mm. And you know that the vast majority of the working people of that town are driving 
from Portlaoise to Dublin. So you're empty from seven in the morning till seven in the evening. Pretty much, yeah. You're empty, yeah. right? Imagine those towns if people work from home or if companies bought little bits of real estate there, like pods, like hubs, yeah. that you could actually go and work there. Right? Suddenly those towns become vibrant. You're boils of this world. They become mm. vibrant. They become interesting. One of the great fears that anyone would have, if, if you've ever been to rural France, rural France has been denuded of population. Yeah, These towns are empty. Their towns are dead, right? Because people all left to go to the big cities. And rural Ireland is the same. But COVID gives us the opportunity to rethink that. And I think the state should accelerate the broadband. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take it on the chin, take the cost on the chin, and just do it in the same way as we built railroads in the 19th century. But why don't we do what the likes of Tanzania did and Algeria and places like that and get Chinese investment in? They are building fast train systems all over Africa. Get a bit of that. I'll tell you, I think I think ostensibly it's a good idea, but... Damn right it is. The last couple of weeks have shown us one thing, is that the Cold War between America and China is crystallizing. Oh, yeah. Much quicker than we ever imagined. And Europe is taking sides, and Europe is siding with America. Yeah. And I think that Chinese investment... The idea that Chinese investment could be without strings attached, which was very much the sort of checkbook mm. diplomacy, we're going to be China, we're going to, is a new, I think that's out the window now. I mean, we're, unfortunately, we're going to have to build it ourselves. <laughs> it's going to be overruns and things. But I think COVID gives us the opportunity to reimagine how we live. And I believe that's huge. And it's a, it's a lasting legacy. If we take the opportunity... You could profoundly change the city. Like outside here, outside our window, there is a bicycle lane yeah. going from Black Rock to Sandy Cove. That has been accelerated by COVID. They're taking half the road. It's a one-way system now. And, and it's busy. You know, busy, that's what you can do. It's full of bikes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we know that, for example, this is the really germane thing about urban planning. If you set aside parts of the road for bikes, the number of bikes will increase dramatically. Mm. But the corollary is also the case. If you set aside huge stretches of the roads for cars, the numbers of cars will increase dramatically as well. So one thing we know about traffic management from all over the world is that more roads doesn't mean better flow of traffic, it means more traffic. We spoke about it before, the idea between that traffic doesn't flow like a liquid. So you expand the road and the liquid flows quicker. Mm. It flows much more like gas, that you expand the road, or let's say the pipe in this case, the gas case, and the gas fills it up slowly, right? So I saw something the other day. I was in Ranala, or is it Renala? Oh, it's Ranala. I think think people who live in Ranala say Renala. I think really these... Oh, mind swanky, these swanky sort of Gonzaga Egypts, they say Renala, apparently, even though it's Renala. Yeah. Sort of a distinction point. Anyway, so I'm sitting with Shan in a cafe called Tribeca. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Was- which is on the main street in Ranala, not Renala. And there's a really poxy little bicycle lane. Now, this is Eamon Ryan's constituency. 
Just the right. green shirt. And it's really poxy, right? And on the far side of the street, they've got a few little bollards. Yeah. But on this side, the Tribeca side, they've nothing, right? So you've got buses going into them, vans going into it. And then I was watching the bike lane and a guy comes up and parks smack in the middle of the bike lane. Mm. Now there are traffic wardens walking around giving tickets, right? Yeah. And there are cops in the vicinity, right? But nobody moves them on. So suddenly the bikes have to go around. It wasn't a delivery van or anything. No, it wasn't. It was just okay. a bloke okay, parking. Yeah. He just parked, right? But because he parked, but five minutes later, somebody else parked. Right. And then somebody yes. else, somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And by about a quarter of an hour later, the entire cycle lane was blocked with cars. Now, if we are serious about creating a new Dublin, you need to reef those cars out of it. Absolutely. Straight away. Yeah, yeah. Because once you do it, it's, it's like that broken windows theory. Remember that unless you punish the small crimes, the big crimes happen. So if somebody, it was it was a Giuliani thing in New York at the time, right? <laughs> right, okay. But I mean, again, the idea was that if you tolerate a broken window in an estate, right, and you don't fix it, mm. you'll find that the person who smashed the window, very suddenly one broken window gives permission for two, for three, for four, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. The, yeah. the estate goes to shite, right? But the same sort of idea is if you don't punish one guy parking in the bicycle lane, then everyone's going to do it, right? And it struck me, though, that if you look at how other cities have reacted to COVID, Milan and Paris have reacted by implementing this idea called the 15-minute city. Oh, yeah. The 15-minute city is a totally new way of looking at urban spaces. It's kind of like a post-car city, right? Okay. So the car is the enemy of proper urban living. And I actually believe that's the case, right? The cars destroy cities and have destroyed our cities for the last hundred years. Right. And the car lobby has lobbied for many, many years against public transport, against the train system, yeah. and has been very, very successful. And Milan is actually a, a car city, though, in, in terms of production. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And Milan and Turin, of course, is the big field yeah. production. But what Milan have done, the 15-minute city is a beautiful idea. The idea is that you will never live either 15 minutes walk or by bike mm -hmm. away from everything you need. So your entertainment, your work, your home, your culture, your public spaces, your sport, whatever you need, yeah. will be within a 15-minute walk or cycle. And there will be cycle lanes there. It's the idea is to envisage the city beyond cars. So this is a little bit like that kind of autonomous neighbourhood. It's like a little bit like in New York where they have, you know, a little neighbourhood here and everything is in that little neighbourhood. Well, is that the, what you it's mean? it's the idea of the living city. So mm. the city, so from 1950 to the last four or five years, the city was besmirched by planners. And by that I mean that the city wasn't regarded as a living organism, an ecosystem in itself. It was a place to drive to yeah. and a place to drive away from. Yeah. And that's yeah, our, yeah. our whole planning has been based on that. So the, the two things, one is it created a, an empty, ghostly city during the weekends and the evenings, and it created commuter towns, which were no more than dormitory towns in the evenings as well. Yeah. So everyone got into their car, drove from the dormitory town into the city, left the city, drove back out to the dormitory town. So you just kind of, it's like, a, it's like you know, in, in Yugoslavia, ethnic cleansing. 
right? Right. Like a okay. population transfer. Yeah. But this was a willing population right, transfer. Right. Okay, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So the population would transfer itself from A to B and then from B to A, right? And all the while enriching road construction and car yeah. purchasing and production, yeah. right? Yeah. Crazy thing in Ireland, we don't make cars. So we should actually do everything in our power to minimize the attractiveness of cars because we get nothing from it. If you yeah. imagine that, think about it. I can understand that Germany might elevate car usage because they make the things. Yeah. We don't make them. The only people who make money out of cars in Ireland are car dealers and the government taxing them. Yeah. But there's no actual... Petrol stations. Petrol stations. But there's nothing, there's nothing going back to us, right? But anyway, so let's think about the, the, the city as a living organism. There's a mayor in France called Anne Hidalgo, who's the mayor of Paris. She's just been re-elected. Yes, yeah. And she has an advisor called Moreno. And Moreno is an urban planner. And he is bringing in this idea that the city lives and everything should be within a 15-minute walk or, or, or drive. So he's talking about us having concentric circles in every city. Could be the little villages. Yeah. In the Irish sense, like yeah. Terenure is different to Ranala, is different to Fibsborough, is different to... Right, could be the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the idea would be that nobody really has to commute in and out of anywhere. Now, in the French case, interestingly, they haven't enough offices in Paris. They have too many flats and not enough offices. Jeez, we'd have it can to, take some virus. That's what I'm saying. So we'd have to switch it around. Yeah. And reduce profoundly the amount of offices and dramatically increase the amount of flats and apartments. But... What COVID does is you realise you don't need to go to work, to a place. You need to be at work, but you don't need to go to work. Yeah. And going to work, so you don't need cars, you don't need expensive offices, but you need very good Wi-Fi. And you need the flexibility to understand that if you have a crisis, you go and meet as a team and you figure things out. Mm. But I, I I think it's fascinating, but... Now there's an opportunity. I, I don't think there's that much resistance to this at the moment. I think people understand that this is a good thing. Yeah. And the comes from a great American writer, all this thinking, called Jane Jacobs. Okay. And Jane Jacobs has written many, many economics books, but one of her most famous book, I think it probably is the most famous book, is The Life and Death of Great American Cities. And in it, and this was written in the early... 60s. Okay. And she was American and then she emigrated to Canada as quite a lot of American liberals did in the 60s because they didn't like what was going on in the United States. Yeah. Whether it was segregation in the 50s or the Vietnam War in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, So you find actually quite a few Canadian liberals like Naomi Klein, you know, the No Logo. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's the daughter of American liberals who migrated up to Canada during the Vietnam War. But Jane Jacobs left America protesting against segregation. And so it's an early Black Lives Matter person in the 1950s. But she wrote these books about urban planning. And her enemy was Le Corbusier, the French architect, and his idea of putting people in kind of anthills, these sort of various different... So Le Corbusier's big idea is you build these monstrous, modernist, brutalist structures and put people in them. So like big housing estates, like... Massive housing estates, massive housing estates with no connection to anything. And she was saying that she compared... It's really interesting. She For Jane Jacobs, the sidewalk, as the Americans say, the footpath, 
was the essential archery of the of the community. The yeah, footpaths okay. were sacred. There were places to play. There were places to walk. There were places to meet people. She describes city life as being the great waltz of urban adventure. <laughs> but the people nice. were kind of waltzing into there and there was a big dance yeah, and yeah, people yeah. would meet each other and there'd be public spaces and it's really fascinating stuff. And it, it has taken a long time. So she was against, for example, high rise, right? She thought that the higher people go up, the less likely they are to come down to this to the street <laughs> and the less likely they are to mix with each other. Right, okay. And it's a, it's, so she was talking that maybe the ideal height is about four or five stories but that it is essential that people occupy the street. And then she argued very strongly that the street, the way in which you police the street is we police ourselves. So she was arguing in the 60s and 70s against the ghettoization of American cities. And she was saying one of the reasons that American cities are ghettoized is that we have allowed the car and the road to monopolize the footpath. And therefore people, there's no people on the footpath. And as there's no people, there's no... She was talking about policing being eyes on the street. Yeah. That basically you protect me and I protect you and I protect him and I protect her and we protect our kids and everyone knows what's going on. And she was making the point that in Lower East Side, New York, which were described as a ghetto by people who didn't live in the Lower East Side, yeah. the crime rates were very low, even though the people were very poor because they're living on top of each other and everyone's looking out for each other. Okay, yeah, and there was a more of a sense of community. Massive sense of community. You know, I can testify to that in, in Southern California. Remember, I was over there quite a few years ago in Orange County and places like that, Newport Beach. and Dreadful places. Yeah, they are dreadful places. They're awful places. Because you have to have a car. You're lost without a car. There are no footpaths as such. Everything was, as you say, spread out. But the other thing I was going to say as well is that it's interesting that the French guy... What was his name again? Le Corbusier. All of that idea of high-rise estates and stuff, like we had Ballymun here, mm-hmm. and we had the Broadwater Farm in London, and, you know, all these have proven to be disasters and are hence being torn down. And the, and the reason she argued is, was because humans love contact. This is her central yeah, argument. Course, yeah. Humans are social animals, and the urban, the pre- brutalist, modernist, urban landscape was maybe the most suitable for human communication, that you actually all live cheek by jowl, okay? And there is a certain vibrancy in the public space. Mm. And the public space... Now, it's very... It, it's fascinating if you, if you imagine Joyce was into all this stuff too, right? So Bloom, right? So it's all about this idea that Bloom was into public spaces and public transport right. and public amenities. And, like, it's no surprise. Like, what did Joyce create? Where does the Irish people celebrate Joyce? A walk around a city. That's what yeah, Bloom's yeah, yeah, all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. you meet in the public space and you meet your man and your man and your one and yeah. la, la, la and places and you're dropping your hat to people saying hello. And there's an exception. It's basically what Jane Jacobs was talking about. It's the great waltz of life, of the yeah. city. You know, and you're in and out and moving around. That's what COVID, to come back, allows us to reimagine. Take the cars out of the city. You put as many cycle lanes as possible. You expand the footpaths. You understand the value of the footpath. The footpath is your artery. Imagine that life is like blood pumping around the city. 
And the footpath is your artery and your capillaries going all over there. Yeah. And that brings people and brings people life. And that's how you reimagine. And I think in our case in Ireland, we could, particularly in a city like Dublin or Cork, these are cities that are absolutely perfect. Like Cork, if, if, you, if, you, if you blocked traffic east to west in Cork, yeah. not north to south, but it's east to west, you could create an amazing walkway from the Lee all the way down to the Mardike, because I know Cork quite well. Yeah. And then you'd think about somewhere like Dublin, and then once you reoccupy the street for the people, and once you realise that people own the street, then you look upwards in three, four-storey Dublin, and you look at all those empty potential apartments. Yes, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I've always thought that when I look up at Dublin and I see the first floor has, a, has maybe a shop, and there's nothing above it. I think that sort of dereliction is a form of vandalism. And you penalise that. You identify who owns this building. This building is going to rack and ruin. Okay, we are going to tax you. We're going to penalise you for your vandalism of the cityscape. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you say, okay, I'm going to put two apartments up here, we're going to give you a tax break on your rent for five years. So suddenly you create the incentives to revitalise the city. You take the cars out, and I think you create something magical here. Yeah, I love the idea of revitalising the cities. London is actually a great example of the city of London. It's a beautiful city, that square mile, but nobody lives there. Nobody it's completely at dead. Completely dead at the weekends and in the evenings. I remember years ago when I worked in the city, and we'd be working on maybe a deal and you'd have to go in on a Saturday. Right, work. yeah. And it was extraordinary. You'd come up out of the tube at Bank... Yeah. There'd be nobody there. Nobody around. Yeah. Nobody around. No tourists, no nothing. Yeah. Even St. Paul's, Bank, Aldwych, all those places. Yeah. Yeah. Not a so th- sinner. Yeah, and the thing is, it was a lovely place to walk around. But then, of course, none of the pubs were open. There was nothing to even yeah. hang out. So that idea of revitalizing the cities in Dublin and Cork and that kind of stuff is is brilliant. What are the cities that currently have that. I'm sure well, there's, there's a lot I mean, of, in uh, Holland. Everyone, yeah, so. everyone talks about the Scandinavian cities, particularly Denmark. Uh, yes, yeah, Copenhagen. Yeah. Copenhagen's a gorgeous city. But also many German cities okay. have revitalized themselves. Many, many continental cities feel like living organisms. Yeah. They feel like living, breathing cities. Barcelona's a good example. I know rents have gone out of control there recently, but it feels like a living city. And all of this harks back to a civic pride. This is the point that I believe is missing in Ireland, Mm. is pride in the city, understanding the city itself is part of the brand of the people. And civic pride goes incredibly deep if you have it. Yeah. But if you don't have it, you know it's missing. So I think for many, many years, Dublin City was run by people who hated Dublin. By that I mean, it was run by engineers from the country who worked for various departments. Right. Who were very happy to commute, who felt no proximity to or affection for the city, its buildings, its people, its people very Mm. importantly, Dublin Dublin people, okay, Dublin city people. Yeah. And as a result of that, there was also definitely in the first few decades of the Republic's existence, a sense that Dublin's architectural heritage 
was a British heritage, was a hangover from the British state. Yeah, all and the Georgian. And Georgian stuff wasn't yeah. really ours to reclaim because it was never ours. So there was a hyper-ruralism that came in. And if you think as well, modernity is an awful thing at one level, right? If you believe that modernity is the way forward and is the solution, suddenly what you do is you demolish history in front of you and you replace it with something like the car. If you believed in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, yeah, yeah. that the car was this sign of modernity, then you would smash. Like, For example, do you know where outside St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin? Yeah. Do you know that, that crossroads The there, crossroads, yeah, right? yeah. Do you know that there were six pubs in that crossroads? Six really? pubs, yeah, facing each other, right? right? And that was a bustling part, and it was smashed by road engineers who decided to knock down the buildings on either side and widen the road to go where? Nowhere. To go to Christchurch. That's true. So, and it's it's actually, there's only one pub there that I... Exactly. ...spar on the other corner. Exactly. There's a, uh, there's a great pub called Fallon's, though, just around the corner. I'll tell you a story about Fallon's, right? Go on. I used to drink in Fallon's when I worked in the Central Bank because mm. I had a flat on Parliament Street. That's right. Okay? Yeah, remember, I remember that, that. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I'd walk up from Parliament Street. There was only one bar in Parliament Street then, which was the Old George. The only gay bar in Dublin was That's on right, Parliament yeah. Street. Yeah. And then Barclay they, Dons was a gay bar as well. I think the George was a gay bar. Right. Barclay Dons was, a, it went either way, right? Right. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, do you know what I mean? Wow. Very modern. Go on. Very modern. But, but the George was almost, like, shamefully, when you think about it now, now I'm going to tell you another story about the George in a second, right? <laughs> but shamefully, thing was really, that was almost like this small little windows. There was no sense of celebrating anything about gay Ireland. This was in the 1990s. Yeah. But more interestingly, the George identified as a gay bar Dublin City Council was going to take its license away from it so it could be a gay bar but couldn't serve booze. What? Yes. Because booze would make you promiscuous and lascivious. Oh, will you stop? I swear to Jesus. I swear to God. Are you in the 90s? In, no, in the 80s. In 80s, the 80s. 70s, yeah. Okay. When there was a bar, there was a place called the, Hirsch, Jesus Christ. the Hirschfield Centre. Yeah. Which David Norris was a serious player in bringing small very underground gay culture mm. to Dublin in the 1980s and 1990s. And the Hirschfield Centre was the only gay centre. It's also a place you could get a late gargle. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> in the Hirschfield Centre, right? And I think Hirschfield, if I'm not mistaken, was a gay man persecuted by the Nazis, if I'm not mistaken, and became... Where is the Hirschfield Centre? I'll tell you exactly where it is now. If you are in Temple Bar... Mm-hmm. And if you walk, remember, you know where the central bank is? You yeah. walk behind the central bank. Yeah. But on the left-hand side, yeah. there's a shop On the side selling, of the Foggy Jew. Exactly. So right. the Foggy Jew was yeah. the old Foggy Jew. The smelliest bar in Ireland. Yeah. And it was the old Foggy, I, the foggy I Jew. the Foggy Jew. Yeah. <laughs> and, we did, right, and you walk down from the river, towards the river from there. Yeah. That little cobble street. Right. Okay. That's exactly where the Hirschfield gotcha. Centre was. Gotcha. It was firebombed in the 80s. Really? Yeah, by anti-gay activists or crazies, right? Oh, Jesus. But I hear I, stuff like that in my heart just I know, sings. it's mad, but that was Dublin in its day. Yeah. You know? But we used to drink, uh, because there was no bars on Parliament Street. There was a little bar in the corner on Parliament Street, but we used to drink in Fallon's. And there was an owl lad at the bar. He was there every night. Mm. 
proper dub, and he was called Rem, or E-M. Right. And I was always intrigued as, why this guy was called R-E-M, Rem, because it didn't sound like a name. And one night, uh, I was actually there with a guy called Paddy Brannock, who's a director, movie director, mm. and Robbie Walpole, a producer. And we did a few weeks, we talking to Rem, and Robbie said to him, listen, where's the name from R-E-M? And he said, they are the three things I fucking hate in this world. Rangers, England, and Meath. <laughs> Meath. Dubs GAA hates Meath, because remember, Meath were good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course he hates Rangers. Yeah, yeah, of course, England. of course. So that was it. That was, he was identified by his three hatreds. <laughs> Was our Mr. Rem. Is that right? The band got the name. I, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be great if it were Michael Stipe is outed as a Dubs GA supporter and anti-English and a Celtic supporting anti-Rangers aficionado. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. John, the, my point is that somebody has to look after the city. Yeah. Somebody has to wake up in the morning and when they're brushing their teeth has to think about Dublin. I think about how the city melds together, how it blends together. And there's a great example from history, which is the history of Florence. Right. And the guilds of Florence, the Florentine Republic. So Florence was not a papacy member, nor was it a member of empire. From about 1300 to about 1570, it was a free republic. And the free republic was run by guilds, the weavers' guilds, right. the moneylender okay. guilds, yeah. the woolen guilds, right? And it was run by the civic bourgeoisie for the city. So when I say civic bourgeoisie, it wasn't like a democracy of one man, one vote. Mm. It was if you were in a guild, your guild elected a leader and that leader went to the parliament and they'd made the decisions. Not the parliament, yep. the council, they yep. made the decisions. Yep. But they were infused by legislation which explicitly said, it is our job to make the city as beautiful as it can be. Okay, so yeah. they all competed with each other to build beautiful buildings, amazing municipal squares, art. So this is, the Renaissance all comes from that. Yeah. The Renaissance comes from patrons, from wealthy patrons who said the city is part of our power 
And the city's beauty is part of our beauty. And also because they were Republican, they distinguished themselves from the old aristocracy by not dressing and displaying signs of their wealth outrageously. Right, right okay. But where they did display signs of their wealth was in their public buildings. Right. So basically, they walked around quite modestly and they hid their wealth and they lived in these palazzios, but they weren't palaces like the old palaces. They were basically five, six-story buildings over their shops, over their guilds, whatever they were selling. They were selling sure. wool and silk, yeah, right? Yeah. But what they did collectively over 200 years was create, you know, maybe the most beautiful city in Europe based on the civic bourgeoisie, based on thinking it is our job to make the city beautiful, to look after the city, to build gorgeous buildings. Now, we can't do that right now because we don't have those families in the city that are wealthy. But Dublin City Council or Cork City Council or whoever happens to be needs to think like a almost a patrician bourgeois member of the Florentine guilds. And I really mean this, that somebody wakes up in the morning and when they're brushing their teeth, they think about the beauty of what we're going to do today for the city. And if we could achieve that, this place could be gorgeous. But I suppose the problem these days is that, like you say, we don't have that kind of way of thinking. We don't have those kind of people because they'll be now, they'll be seen as a, very much a philanthropic activity. Yeah, yeah, I activity. suppose you would call that, yeah, uh, philanthropy now, yeah. And and the flip side of that as well is that the more kind of global a city is, the more transient the crowd is and the, and the that, residents. I don't know, that, that is a very fair point. However, think about, you know, we talked about multinationals in the past, right? Think about all these big multinational companies that now are taking offices in Dublin. Yeah. Imagine we said, you have a small obligation, but your obligation is to do something that makes the city beautiful, over and above your profit motive. Because this is what the merchants... I'm reading an amazing book at the moment. Go on, called, tell called us. The Merchant, the Merchant of Prato, The Daily Life in a Medieval Italian City by Iris Origo. And it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, a, it's the letters of an extraordinary <laughs> merchant in Prato, which is in Tuscany, yeah. a small city, called Francesco Di Marco Dattini. And they found these amazing letters, thousands of letters this guy right. wrote. And he was a merchant, right? But it's all about his obligation to the city, what he was doing. Who does he write the letters to? He, he was writing letters to all, like he, for example, he's writing letters to his great letters to his missus. Right. It's okay. very, very rare. But those letters to everything, all the creditors, bankers, gotcha, woolen gotcha, merchants, yeah. everyone who's doing it. But there's all this idea that, you know, we have an obligation over and above profit. There's also extraordinary letters to his wife. And what's really lovely is it's a totally normal marriage. Like, he's a very rich guy and he's married to a woman. She's, this, these things, so things don't change. She's 20 years younger than him, mm-hmm. you know? Good man. And uh, rich blokes tend to do that, right? But... Uh, it's really funny, and she's kind of saying, no, no, you're only a tosser, I wouldn't do that. Like, it's a proper marriage, it's really good. Like, it doesn't, because they're letters written to each other, because yeah. he's always away trading. But the Merchant of Prato is also all about the responsibility that commerce has to the greater good. That's my point. That something we've lost. Yeah, and something we could inculcate. So, for example, when large corporations base themselves in Dublin, 
be they foreign or Irish, you'd say, okay, but part of your ground rent is an obligation to build a park, Mm. to do this, to create a space, to buy a thousand bicycles for the people and give them out free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To plant trees, to agitate the council, to have less cars, not more, and become part of our campaign to make the city beautiful. That is a very small price to pay when you're getting a huge tax break for being here, when you're getting your employees who are educated by the Irish state, who are paid for by our taxes, etc. So it's just a matter of changing, John, the conversation. Mm. I don't think it's that radical. You just do it. Over the last couple of months, you've asked, could we get our academic courses, the online course, the Ask Mac tutorials, CPD, i.e., could you get points for continuous professional development as part of your own career development? I'm delighted to say, yes, indeed. Coming up from the 1st of September, our courses will be CPD applicable. You'll be able to get points on all the courses. We're going to give the details, watch this space, but I think it's a really exciting development. Talk to you soon.